0: What up AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period and All the Above Podcast Extra. As you know, we like to drop these in between our full episodes, our most recent full episode featuring the super dope Kim Turner talking about Title IX and the fight for gender equity throughout our school system um, was released last week. And if you missed that, please go back and check it out because you definitely will be as amazed by that conversation as I was because Jeff, I learned a lot from that conversation and I meant to like figure out who is the Title IX coordinator in our district because she mentioned that like a lot of folks don't even know when they're the Title IX coordinator. But then school started and yeah, then school started. So um, gentle listener, I just rolled out of bed. Sorry if I sound sleepy still. I'm not fully awake because I just had my first week (laughs) at school. And Jeff said, let's record passing period at a record early time because Jeff, you are not currently in California, and you've got some special stuff happening today, right? What's good with you? Well, yeah,
1: this is going to be a science lesson for for everyone, I think, here today, (laughs) uh, because it is, uh, I'm sure I'm about to totally butcher this, actually, Manuel, but, uh, you know, time is relative. Uh, (laughs) So I am currently in the central time zone where it's early but it is our normal time we <laughs> we would record. Uh and you sir are in the Pacific time zone where it is just early. <laughs> just nothing but early for a Saturday. And uh so yes this is this is all my fault. Um but I am here because uh, my I have a family member who is getting married. Yeah. And uh, the wedding is today in just a few hours here. So, um, so as soon as we wrap this up, I will be uh, steaming the suit, shaving, you know, all that good stuff. Uh, and I am I am officiating the wedding, so I got to get my yeah. you know,
0: get my act together. So awesome. Well that's beautiful yeah. and certainly I hope it's a wonderful wonderful wedding and you know just wonderful remaining weekends with your family out there cuz that's that's super dope. That's worth that's worth me getting up early even though I just had my first week of school and you know that teacher tired hits very very extra extra hard at this time of year. But you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it because you officiating a wedding, Mr. Super Duper Dope Principal Leader man. Um that's just, that's just wonderful. So, yeah, congrats to your brother. And, yeah, man, hope you all have a fantastic, fantastic wedding ceremony.
1: Uh, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it. It should, uh, should be really, really nice. So
0: it's going to be a beautiful day. Cool. Well, folks, as I just mentioned, we just went back to school out here in Southern California. Uh, some districts start on Monday. A few districts started like a week or two ago. So we know probably there are listeners who... If you are, you know, working in the school system, we know a lot of folks who listen and follow all of the above are are passionate about schooling, but aren't themselves educators. But if you are an educator, you maybe also just went back to school. So shout out to you if you just started a, a fresh new school year out there, and if the, you still have some time, if you still have, you know, you East Coast folks who don't go back until after Labor Day, or I think certain parts of the East Coast, I don't know. Um, yeah, shout out to you. Enjoy these last summer weeks. And Jeff, for folks who are headed back into the classroom, especially in light of all that's been in the news with curriculum and wokeness and all that stuff. Um, We've heard on the show quite a few times, um, guests reference this chilling effect that these anti-CRT, don't say gay bill type laws have on the teaching of so-called controversial topics. And now it looks like we have for the first time some actual numbers suggesting just how many teachers have been impacted by all of this discussion and and all these laws and all these attacks on our curriculum. So what we got, man, what we got for this week's passing period story?
1: Yeah, man, well, I, uh, uh, so this article uh, that we're going to be drawing from is in Chalkbeat uh, by Kalen Belsha. I hope I'm saying uh, that person's name correctly. And it is entitled Chilling Effect. One in four teachers told to limit class talk on hot-button issues. Uh, a great headline there. Whoever, whatever editor came up with that, props to you. Uh, and this is detailing, as you said, Manuel, um, some interesting data coming from the Rand Corporation. Uh, survey data of about 2,400 teachers nationally. So a pretty, pretty large sample survey. Uh and the highlights include that nearly one in three uh, teachers said they had gotten uh, orders uh, essentially by their, by their school or by their district leaders to limit classroom conversations about political and social issues. Um, now the one in three, uh, or I'm sorry, it was one in four overall. If you drill down, uh, it was one in three Uh, Teachers got those orders who work in states with a official restriction on teaching about racism, sexism or other contentious topics. So think Texas, Florida, um, New Hampshire, right? All the states we've talked about uh, in the past, um, roughly half the states in the country, I think, at this point um, that we've been talking about over the last couple of years now. Um, that have explicit laws on the books saying, you know, don't make white people uncomfortable, don't say gay, don't, you know, don't uh, teach that one race is superior to another race. All the ridiculous right-wing propaganda that that has been now codified into law. So one-third of teachers said they're getting explicit orders, don't talk about these things. In my mind, Manuel, perhaps the more compellingly interesting uh, piece of data to come out of this out of this survey is that in the other states, right, the states with no official policy, one in five teachers are also reporting that they have been told to limit classroom discussions on these kinds of topics as well. So, in some ways, man, well, it's I find it maybe actually a little bit surprising that only one in three teachers in the you know most right-wing states among us. Got those messages? I figured it might be closer to three out of three. <laughs> uh, frankly, given that schools are generally very good at at communicating laws to people, uh, but in other states, uh, one in five. You know, that's a that's a large chunk of teachers, um, and I think speaks very much to to uh, our somewhat recent episode with uh, Professor Yvette Butler, who's the law school professor at the University of Mississippi. The state of Mississippi is also uh, spoken about in this article. Um, And she talked about, as the one professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law who's teaching critical race theory, actual critical race theory, not boogeyman critical race theory, uh, talked about even in her context, the chilling effect that this law in Mississippi was having, right? And and so, you know, to, to see, Manuel, that we have uh, what I th- am still considering a campaign of psychological warfare against the children of this country and, frankly, against all of us uh, by, you know, by saying we, we have to essentially teach lies to our children um, and that we are too, you know, fragile or immature to be able to talk about the very basic aspects of how our world functions. Uh, around them that they can plainly see, which is things like you know, racism and sexism and th- that sort of stuff. Um, you know, this this campaign of psychological warfare has been extremely, extremely successful. Uh, and here we are kicking off the school year, and about a quarter of the teachers, if you know, assuming this is a, a good representative sample, we're talking about about a quarter of the teachers nationally getting explicit direction to not do that. Now, if I don't know, drilling down into the data, Manuel, for example, like how many, at the, especially at the secondary level, how many like math and science teachers would have received that kind of message, right? Because, mm. Or like PE teachers, right? There's a lot of subjects where there's a very low likelihood that the curriculum itself is going to say much at all about profound issues of social movements and equity and discrimination, right? Like the curriculum is going to talk about gas laws and, you know, finding the area of of polygons and stuff right and and like yeah there's a there's a social justice angle on that i'm sure it's just not in any textbook that i've seen <laughs> so uh so if you factor that those folks are probably not getting those messages right that we're really talking about like the english social studies and kind of related electives teachers who are probably the main targets of this message those numbers that jumps up probably you know pretty dramatically I would be my Assumption here, right? they like that one in four overall probably means like 80% of the humanities teachers are getting this kind of message as opposed to 25% of those folks. Again, that's my speculation here. I don't know for sure, but that, that would be my hunch. So, uh, so yeah, man. Well, this is, we've spoken about this a bunch. This I think is extremely dangerous, historically speaking. Extremely dangerous. The comparisons to all the bad regimes we've ever known in human history—ruthless dictators, Nazis—all of them. them, This is literally exactly (laughs) a step that they pretty much all do, right? Start outlawing the teaching of truth, go after the intellectuals, right? Like this. This is we're on that spectrum. No hyperbole. Uh, So. This is this is troubling. I'm grateful that RAND has gathered this data and that Chalkbeat's reporting on it because information is power. And at the same time, man, well, this is not a
0: good look right now. Not, <laughs> not a good look. at all. Yeah, man. You are correct. And I, I love that they have collected this data and I want to know more for sure. And I'm sure there will be more data coming out. As you pointed out, like how does this vary by subject matter? Because that might skew the numbers. There might be the numbers might be a lot higher among humanities teachers, for sure, than, you know, math teachers, for example. Also, I'm curious how this varies by grade level. I'm curious how this varies by by region, even though we know, obviously, states where these laws are on the books are going to have uh, higher numbers of teachers saying this as you know, these numbers show. But still, I, I just want more information about it because. This is not going anywhere. It's obviously going to get worse, and until we really have a clear picture of exactly how this chilling effect is impacting our classrooms and who it's impacting, um, then we can't really respond thoughtfully uh, to it. You know, so so I'm definitely looking forward to more information about um, what exactly is going on in terms of uh, teachers' interpretations or or um, reactions to these laws and to these discussions. Now, something that stood out in these in the reporting here is that. A lot of these teachers said they haven't been given enough guidance on how to navigate these laws or how to have these conversations. And on the one hand, it's kind of like, you know, it could be an excuse like, oh, you know, I would love to do this and that. But, you know, they haven't given me guidance on that. So uh, you would, so I'm just not or I can't. So, you know, it could be an excuse for some folks. But I think legitimately for a lot of teachers, these laws that we've we spoken on the show about how these laws have been written and worded in such like Vague, weird, like stupid ways that, like, legitimately, it's a question of, like, well, what does this actually mean in my classroom? So, for example, the Florida law, which um, I think we read bits and pieces of that on the passing period months ago, and you know it mentions not, um, or students can't be made to feel uh, guilty or discomfort on account of their race or whatever. It's like, well, what does that? look like it like obviously like is that the teacher directly saying like you because of your race like you you know this that whatever because you know teachers don't do that or is it just simply mentioning something that happened in the past let's say the Tulsa massacre um which in which like white Americans blazingly attacked black neighborhoods and you know, a student feels uncomfortable because they, they are reading about it and learning about it. And they see that as white people being so violent and, and deadly. And now I feel uncomfortable because I'm white. And there's a teacher saying that I'm like that. Like, you know, it's just really vague the way it's worded because... A lot of these laws are based on stuff that just doesn't happen. Like teachers don't sit there and 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 try to teach students that they are oppressors and that they are to blame and they should feel shame. Like it's just at least not in my experience, that doesn't actually happen. But that's what's mentioned in a lot of these laws. So teachers are legitimately legitimately wondering like, well, what does this actually mean in the classroom? What am I allowed to do? And what, am, what am I not allowed to do? And it mentioned that I think Tennessee was one of the states mentioned in this write-up that said like they're not planning to give guidance because as far as they're concerned, their, their standards are already in line with whatever law they have that uh, recently passed there. And I think that's true in a lot of cases because these laws are, are built on misinformation. They're built on lies. They're built on mistruths about what teachers, what so-called woke leftist teachers are actually doing. So that guidance is not going to come. So for those teachers who are like, well, I just don't have enough guidance. And, you know, once I get more guidance, I could do it. Yeah, they're not going to give any guidance, um, partly because they don't want to, partly because how can you give guidance for something that is, is directionless and meaningless and, and just so vague that you can't even make sense of it. Like, how can you give guidance to that besides just sit back and say, well, just, you know, use your own judgment and be safe. And that be safe is exactly what this chilling effect is. And that was the, of course, the Purpose of all of this was whether you're in this in those states or not, whether you're technically uh, violating the law or not. Question yourself, worry about it, and choose the safe option, which is the milk toast, general, usual stuff that's not critical at all, that uh, doesn't give any kind of like critical thoughts or anything related to race or or sexuality or anything. And that's exactly what's happening, and that's that's really unfortunate, truly unfortunate. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. I, I think that's an excellent point, uh, Manuel. And
1: and I think there's also an element of this that is, um, you know, so on the one hand, they are definitely coming after anything that is or even sort of closely approximates a, a critical uh, lens on the teaching of history, of social issues, of literature, et cetera. Right. So what uh, what our you know friend of the show, Goldie Muhammad, would uh, would term as criticality. Uh, this, this is an outright war on criticality as, as like an intellectual uh, frame, right as an intellectual practice right. uh, in, in the curriculum across the board. And I have to say, and I, um, I got this idea from, um, from a woman named uh, Jess McIntosh, who hosts a, a radio program I used to listen to, uh, so I can't take credit for it. But uh, my understanding of her is she's like a, a white-presenting uh, Latina. And she has talked about uh, in, you know, in thinking about these sorts of issues and the purpose behind these laws, that uh, on the one hand, it is definitely trying to uh, sort of keep the truth away from the white kids so that they will go on preserving whiteness and white supremacy as we understand it, right? And keep the truth away from kids of color for that matter so they will just go on being victimized by white supremacy, right? and it also contains within it a very insidious, uh, you know, sort of secondary motive, right, which is the assumption, quote unquote, that the white kids who they who they supposedly are so worried about uh, in these kinds of, you know, with these kinds of laws that these white kids are going to read about history, see the evil things that their ancestors uh, <laughs> did and identify with their ancestors as opposed to identifying with, say, the white folks with like John Brown and, uh, you know, Ch- Cheney and Goodman, right? And like, you know, the the white folks who were like, oh, this is wrong and I am casting my lot in with the struggle for freedom, right? Uh, which there are numerous examples of throughout American history um, in in many ways. And, uh, and I think that same kind of uh, principle holds true with other, you know, I'm certainly speaking from like a, a racial lens right now, but I think the same thing could be true with other lenses of oppression as well. And so I think it's just a really interesting point to consider, right? That like the extent to which this is not only burying the truth or these laws are not only attempting to bury the truth about what actually happened, but also to bury the examples of folks who On one hand, belonged to an oppressor group, but who chose to fight back against that as well, right? Who really serve as examples of uh, co conspirators, allies, folks who, you know, who really risked. Uh, in, in some cases, their very lives in order to join a struggle for freedom. Right. And it is burying that history as well, which is like an extra spin on the, you know, on the psychological warfare. Right. They're like you're you're not only taking away the truth, you're taking away the people who fought <laughs> for the truth and and quote unquote, you know, turned against their own uh, in this equation, which is uh, which is to think a, a lens on this that that, you know, we probably don't always think about.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great point. Um certainly I, I think the the various ways in which these laws help uphold white supremacy, you know, help uphold the status quo are are multiple and varied. And this is I just I feel like Without I don't want to give credit, but I just have to give credit to them because this was a successful ass campaign, man, over the last two years to make CRT this boogeyman to make like like this backlash to 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 all that happened in the summer of twenty twenty. Like this man, this is successful. Like how many what other what other recent efforts in education would you say, like recently have had so many teachers, in this case, one in four and, you know, one in three, depending on how you look at it, shift, like they're thinking about the classroom and what they do and what they offer um, out of, you know, concern for what, like this, it's hard to move things in education. It's hard to actually like affect any kind of change, good or bad in the actual classroom itself, because there's so many layers before you actually get to the classroom. And here you had some folks that just went out there with these lies, jumped on social media, jumped on the cable news networks, and have gotten really, really far with this incredibly dangerous rhetoric, this incredibly just fascist and scary and very real attack on our school system, on our schools and and everything. So. Uh, yeah, it's just crazy. Uh, One thing I did also want to point out about these numbers. I'm looking at teachers of color specifically and students of color, because a lot of times during these discussions, I'm thinking about myself and it's just my classroom feels so far removed from these discussions, from what's going on, because it's like community of color, students of color, families of color. And we all just, it's just love. And we're like, we're tackling the heavy stuff. And it's just, there's been no, you know, no sense of like, Uh, pushback or anything from from families that that we serve at our school. And it says in in this uh, article, it says, quote, the survey found that teachers of color who worked most closely with other teachers of color or with students of color were less likely to say they've been told to limit their classroom conversations, suggesting their schools and their families they serve are more supportive of classroom conversations about race, racism, and bias. I think that's really important. I think it's just we got to keep continuing to hammer home that when we talk about like parents and parents being concerned about what their kids are learning and kids handle it, this and that. The assumption nine times out of 10 is that we're talking about white parents and white students and folks who jump on on. In front of the TV, politicians, all that, who say, you know, parents are concerned, parents are this, parents are that. Man, they're talking about white parents, man. They are, they are not sitting down having conversations with black parents and brown parents and indigenous folks and Mm -hmm. like actually think and actually hearing their voices about what they want to see in their curriculum. So I just love that the article pointed that out. It reminds me of um, bell hooks in teaching to transgress when she was talking about. How her before her school was desegregated when it was when she was at a, a all black school with all black teachers, and how much love and how much critical thinking was happening, how much education for liberation was happening, and then when desegregation happened and, and her and her classmates had to go to the white school with the white teachers, how like all of that love and all that criticality was stripped out and was gone like this this like speaks to that at least to me how like when you are in that nurturing environment with folks on the margins who really see education as liberation, who really see it as as part of the fight for equity, the fight for justice, um, yeah, the, the conversation is just different. So I'm glad the article pointed that out. I think we need to talk about that more because that, I just feel like teachers of color, students of color, families of color are often left out of these, these headlines about um, all these laws and CRT and all that stuff. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's yeah, that's an excellent point, man. Um but before we jump into our our second story, man, well I did just I think I I think I misspoke earlier uh when I was talking about the uh the Freedom Summer murders of uh um Chaney Goodman and Schwerner. And I I think I might have uh so James Cheney was a black man and then uh Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner were were white men and I was trying to make the point about uh you know, white folks who who joined the struggle, right, and risked, and in some cases lost their very lives. And uh, just to make sure I set the record straight, it was Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner who were the the two white gentlemen in that that equation who tragically had their lives taken for the basic act of trying to help black people uh, assert their basic rights of citizenship uh, here in these United States, uh, which of course would be a chapter of United States history that our friends on the uh, political right don't want to be taught because it might make some white kids uncomfortable uh, and because it might teach uh, other people that America's not just the, the land of milk and honey. So um, so, anyways, shout out to Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner, and uh, we'll make sure that uh, despite the campaign of psychological warfare, your legacy and struggle uh, lives on um, for the next generation. Yeah, shout out. All right, so uh pivoting a bit, uh, we did want to talk about a second uh story today uh Manuel, which is uh a fascinating fascinating topic i think uh this i i'm I actually wonder if our perspective is going to differ on this topic uh perhaps significantly, but um we know that uh college today is perhaps Uh, More important for people to attend in order to gain, you know, sort of economic mobility than ever before and we also know the college is damn expensive uh, pretty much across the board and uh, criminally so in some cases and uh, here in the great state of California. It's funny to say that when I am not in the great state of California, but here where we normally are uh, in the great state of California. there is a new uh, plan in place to try to uh, make college more affordable. Um, so, the LA Times had an article this week uh, by John Healy um, titled Free Cash for College How California Parents Can Access Cal Kids Funds. So, uh, most importantly, man, well, I think this article starts by reminding us that up until 1970, uh the University of California system was free yep to everybody who went free to so all the old all the old white people and i i am not attempting to be ageist here i'm just saying factually speaking the older white people who would have been alive and been able to benefit from a free college education who love to lecture The younger people about pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and how they don't want to work hard today and this and that, who got a free college education. Uh, That no longer exists now that those folks have pulled the ladder up behind them. And, you know, the cost, the actual cost of attendance for a UC school is now an estimated $25,000 a year. So crazy, you know, economic challenge uh, in in front of of so many people. Um, Okay, so to help address this, this uh, new Cal Kids program will be a taxpayer funded scholarship aimed at helping kids start saving for college from the day they're born. So the program will grant up to $100 automatically to every child born in California on or after July 1st and up to 1500 automatically to every eligible low-income student. Now, uh this is where it gets interesting, Manuel. I'm curious to get your take. Uh this money is going to be tax-free. It will be invested in a mutual fund managed by ScholarShare, which is the state's college savings plan. Um, and can be spent on tuition, books, and other education-related expenses. So, for those who might be familiar, this sounds like something that's very similar to a 529 plan, which many like middle-class and above families have uh, for for children to uh, essentially have tax have investment accounts where the earnings in those investments are um, tax-free if you spend the dividends on qualifying college related expenses. Uh, so this is maybe uh, functionally creating a very small 529 account or something very similar for everyone uh, and and giving a little more to low income folks uh, who generally don't participate in 529 plans because they don't have disposable income to, to do so. So, uh, Manuel? Manuel? This is a fascinating, uh, fascinating policy that's come on the books. I have strong feelings, but I wanna hear your strong feelings before I
0: begin. I could only assume your strong feelings, Jeff, are that here, the state is given handouts, this communist left coast, crazy liberal Gavin Newsom, whatever is, is giving handouts to, to people? What's going to cause people, what's going to lead to, to incentives to actually work? How come people don't work anymore, Jeff? Uh, I could only assume that's your take. So we could go ahead and skip that part. Uh, I will say that I love that this particular write-up in the LA Times pointed out that uh, the UC system was tuition-free up until 1970. And it's far from that now. And the student debt crisis that we are facing is so out of control. And I think so many folks, we are patiently waiting to see if the Biden administration does anything as, you know, student loan payments are, are set to to come back, uh, I think, soon in a couple of weeks or in a month or so. So we're waiting to see if anything significant is going to happen. And I look at this in California, and it's a great idea. I, I think the the general philosophy around it of, you know, getting them started early, uh, set up a little account early, and there's all these incentives built into it to encourage um, parents and caregivers to check in with it, like you get an extra um, bit of money for your kid when you log in, you get another extra bit of money when you link it to a separate uh, 529 savings account, Um, you get an extra bit of money for if you are a foster youth or if you're homeless, and there's all these these things in there built in so that a student could graduate, you know, could, you know, matriculate through the K-12 system and then graduate and have a significant amount of money there to help them with college. But we're not going to like financial literacy ourselves out of this student debt crisis like these, you know, these accounts, these incentives, these little bits to help lower income families get money up for college just misses the bigger point, which is that college should not cost. And it should not take all of this to help ensure that your young person can actually afford to go to college because these are set up right when a kid is born or, you know, within a couple months of the kid being born. Like, it shouldn't take all this effort for you to be able to send your kid to college. Like, you know, you have an infant right there. And college, if that, if you and, and that young one decide that college is the right path, it shouldn't take these superhuman, like, efforts to, to have this account and have that account and log in here and do this and do that and whatever for your young one to go to college. It didn't used to before 1970. And as far as I could tell, um, the, the system grew and the system became the most outstanding state-based UC system, uh, university system in, in the world. So yeah, man, I don't know. It, it sounds good, but I am more hopeful that we will get some actual significant change in terms of Student debt, student loans, and and what it takes to go to college, because these uh, these Cal kids savings accounts are certainly not going to be enough for most people. In fact, the cost of college probably is going up faster than however much this investment account um, will 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 go up over these years. So I don't know. That's my initial thinking. Another one of those policies that is great idea. I'm not against it. If I had to if I had to give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down, like it would get my thumbs up. But I'm not going to sit here and and celebrate because I do believe that the the bigger problem is sitting there and has yet to be fully addressed. Yeah, yeah. I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna take that take a step further, Manuel, and say normally, you know, as I, I am often the somewhat curmudgeon-y one um, in these conversations, uh, being somewhat angry that policies where people are trying to do good things like don't go far enough or aren't like revolutionary enough or that sort of thing. This is one where literally I'm going to say like I I think this is a nefarious type of policy from the standpoint of like on its face it's, ver- it's trying to do something good. But literally what it's doing Manuel is taking state dollars and handing it over to Wall Street to hold for 18 years until, the child is, you know, is college age and then maybe giving it back to the people. Right. And in that 18 years, what's happening with that money on wall street? Like it sounds good to say it's being managed by the state's, you know, college savings plan, but literally what the state is doing is putting it into mutual funds into, you know, stocks, bonds, right. Um, that are all managed by the most predatory financial interests in this country. So this is a massive government subsidy to financial institutions and major corporations. That's what this is. And the theory is like, well, you know, it's a it's a win win for everyone. Right. You get a free savings account. Maybe it'll give you a few bucks for college someday. Maybe it won't because, of course, it's subject to market risk, which I'm sure the fine print will tell all these families and they won't read and won't fully understand because you need to be a freaking attorney to understand all this. But uh, suffice it to say. What this is doing is taking huge amounts of or actually not even that huge, but significant amounts of government money and handing it over to the worst actors in our society and then calling it a college savings plan. Uh, So and that that step is totally unnecessary because what they could do is say, you know what? What we're going to do is drop everyone's tuition by this amount. <laughs> like and we don't have to take only the 1-year-olds right now and the and the kids who are just being born. We could just start with everybody who's going to a UC right now and say, "Hey, your tuition is $500 less this year. $1,000 less this year. $1,500 less, whatever it is, right? We could do that." Okay? But we're not doing that. Instead, we're giving a whole bunch of money to Wall Street to hold on to and use to, rich, to enrich themselves, and they will give us a tiny little slice of dividends, and then we will say freedom or whatever, right? So I don't like it at all. I think it's I think it is uh, nefarious, frankly, in in nature. And I I don't say that to like individually assail the character of whatever state legislatures probably worked hard on passing this. And I imagine those folks, you know, want to do good things in the world or whatever. But I'm sorry, man, I can't support this kind of policy because it placates people and things like, oh, something really good is happening when actually this is like hugely delayed gratification type of policy that many people will not take advantage of. Because let's be real, uh, a lot of folks don't go to college or don't go to college long enough in order to actually reap the benefits for and the current people who are being screwed by by a system where college is too expen- expensive aren't going to actually just have their costs reduced, right? And, of course, this is all a gamble that the market's going to return, going to provide significant returns that makes this little amount of money that the state is putting in altogether actually yield something significant that's going to change anyone's life circumstance or outcomes, you know, 18 years from now. So I'm not a fan. I think it, I think it, uh, placates people while it does nothing really to help folks. And, uh, I'm not even going to give it the pass of like, Hey, people are trying to do good. So let me not get worked up about policies that are trying to do good. I think it's not even actually really trying to do good. It's a, it's a PR stunt that is not going to make a significant difference in the lives of of just about anyone, um, and certainly is not designed to keep pace with the ever increasing costs of college over time, and is is a milk toast, uh, you know, floppy effort uh, to address this problem that actually needs like
0: serious policy solutions and not um, giveaways to Wall Street. But Jeff, I was told that all the California Democrats are a bunch of socialists, and my understanding of socialism is not taking funds for education and giving them to Wall Street. So I do believe probably you are mistaken, Jeff, because we're socialists out here. We don't give money to Wall Street, so I think you have some misinformation. I think you're spreading fake news. Um, but yeah. In the, in the great
1: tradition of, uh, of radical socialist uh, Barack Obama... Um, and his uh, disciple Joe Biden, um, we we have this new communist policy coming out of California, <laughs> Madwell. Which, as you note, there is some types of communism that really are about giving all the money to Wall Street. It's it's uh, you know it's it's uh, Democrat doublespeak, uh, left leftist uh, mar- cultural Marxist doublespeak,
0: all that. Sponsored yes. by Google or somebody, probably. <laughs> no, um, Jeff. Be-
1: Jeff, no, not Jeff Bezos. What's his name? George. George Soros. Oh, George. George Soros. <laughs> there you go.
0: There you go. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, no, yeah. you make some. You know, absolutely fair points. Um, part of me is thinking though that, yes, of course, taking these uh, public funds and letting Wall Street play around with them for however many years for 18 years yeah that's you know absolutely yes that is um, all the things that you said it was then i think like i know i kind of liken it to our own you know state pension like this is um my savings money my retirement money that's tied up in wall street and you know all these uh various various accounts uh with the intention that that would make it bigger than it would be otherwise if we just sat on it so on the one hand i'm thinking okay if the effort is to make sure every family has some money, has some college savings started and to, I think, you know, without, I don't know if he said it, I don't know, but it just kind of seems like this is like part part of the the approach here, at least the public facing approach is to encourage folks to like create college savings accounts and to learn about saving for college and to like do that. So that's that financial literacy type stuff. It seems like that's a big um, part of it. So on the one hand, I see those kind of lessons coming through this, but- to your point, all of that is trash. All of that misses the bigger point, which is that for one, college uh, expenses are are increasing much more rapidly than any of these accounts are gonna increase. And secondly, there's gotta be other ways. There's gotta be better ways to help folks uh, save for college or help folks afford college without giving so much money to Wall Street to, to invest and do their Wall Street thing. So I, I agree with you a lot, but I do think that, or maybe I'm assuming this and maybe I shouldn't assume this, um, that some of the folks behind this are taking the approach of like helping families learn about these things that upper-class families do. Like middle and upper-class families, they do this. They like do exactly what this is um, mapped out to try to do. So maybe this is about trying to help folks um, who don't have access to that that information learn how to do it. But again, that's not gonna, we're not gonna financial literacy ourselves to uh, liberation and to freedom. And that. For sure, um, this for sure is not going to solve the student debt crisis or economic inequality for sure. So yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it's more harm than good. Maybe it's all harm and no good, just harm papered up to look good. So yeah, maybe I would change my my yes vote to a no. You've, I think you've swayed me.
1: All right, well, I'll take that. And I, I will say, Manuel, there is one very simple policy solution to the fact that college is too expensive. And what it is, is make college less expensive. Reduce the cost of college. We don't need complicated financial instruments to do that. We need a lower bill to arrive at the <laughs> doorstep of all the people going to college, okay? Now, if on the back end, the University of California wants to like figure out whatever complicated things they need to do to actually reduce that bill, they wanna sell some land, they wanna invest differently, they wanna whatever, whatever, with their endowments, Okay, we can have that conversation, but the surest way to make college more affordable, the simplest way to make college more affordable is to simply charge less for college, right? Now that's going to require the state spending more on college, right? And spending less on like Oil subsidies or whatever other stupid stuff we're doing, you know, cops in prisons, the, you know, yeah, all the yeah. all the not that good for people and life things that we spend lots of money on. Less of that, more on, on college. Like this is not that complicated.
0: I like it. Make it work. Make it work. That reminds me of uh, the Boondock scene. I don't know if you remember, but like Riley went to the lemonade stand. Lemonade was like a dollar. He only had like seventy-five cents. She was like, but lemonade's a dollar. He was like, just make it work. like that's Just make it work. Just lo- <laughs> just lower the price, okay? Just make yeah. it work. This is what I got. Make it work. Yeah. I, c- I could dig work. it. I could dig it. Yeah. All right, folks. Jeff, I'm awake now. I- I'm ready to record. Um, but I think we're done. <laughs> <laughs> I do think we're uh, done. Uh, I do want hey. to uh, shout out everybody over at EduColor. Um, Jose Wilson, in particular, for welcoming us all over to New York City Last weekend for just a really, really, really dope gathering. Folks, if you don't know about Edge if you haven't checked it out, I mentioned it a couple times, man. Hit the website, educolor.org, especially if you are an educator of color. Um, just a, a fantastic space of really super dope people. And yeah, man, there, there will be more. I will say more. But right now, it's just uh, check out educolor.org if you haven't already. Anything else, Jeff, before we get out of here and let you go officiate a wedding?
1: Well, I, I will say, Manuel, I was when I saw your picture on Twitter with all the cool kids um, at the cool kids table uh, yeah. with like seven all the above uh, former guests. Yeah, that was crazy. I, I was feeling mildly, mildly jealous. A little little bit of FOMO uh going on. I was like, look at Manuel well, having all kinds of fun in my former city with all the coolest educators everywhere. Yeah, uh man. so that, that was dope, man. I was I was happy for you at the same time as I was like, I want to sit at the cool kids table. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, man, it was dope. It was super dope. So many um so many wonderful former ALTA guests. Um all of whom said they're down to come back on the show at some point. And a few others that, that haven't been on the show yet, um, who will certainly be on the show uh, sometime soon. And I'm thinking about you, Damaris um, Gutierrez, out in San Antonio, uh, enjoying some breakfast tacos. But yeah, man, it was dope. It was dope. Good stuff. But yeah, now the school year started. Back to reality. So far, so good, by the way, if anybody's wondering. Uh, the first couple of days of school have been fantastic at our school side. I've loved it. I love being back. And uh, I hope everybody who's headed back um, enjoys their first few days of school. And, uh, yeah, man, I think we'll be back next week with another passing period. Probably, um, maybe, uh, it might be a minute before we have another guest because, uh, yeah, schedules and all that. But, yeah, I think that's it. I think that's it, Jeff. Yeah.
1: It is. Uh, Quick shout-out, LAUSD educators starting on Monday, August 15th. Shout-out to all of you. Good luck uh, coming back. And, hey, it's going to be a great
0: year, man. Let's do this. Yeah. Yeah. All right, folks, do remember that we love you and we hope you have a fantastic week. And now it's time for you to go ahead and get to class.